Hello out there, Radioland. We hope that you are staying safe and healthy and home. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and you're tuned into Mountain Talk on WMMT. For this episode, I talked with novelist Carter Sickles about his latest book, The Prettiest Star, which will be published on May 19th, 2020 by Hub City Press. The Prettiest Star is set in the late 1980s, and it tells the story of a young gay man living with HIV who leaves New York City and moves back in with his family in rural Appalachian, Ohio. In our interview, Carter reads an excerpt from the novel and talks about the process of writing this book, as well as his interest in the intersection of rural and queer stories, and some of the struggles of trying to find histories of the AIDS epidemic in rural communities. Then, Carter talks about getting to spend time on set in Harlan County, Kentucky, during the production of a film based on his first novel, The Evening Hour. Hi, my name is Carter Sickles. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and I teach at Eastern Kentucky University, um, and I'm a novelist, and I'm the author of The Prettiest Star and The Evening Hour. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so The Prettiest Star comes out this May, um, and so it hasn't been released yet at the time of this recording. And for folks who are going to listen to this episode and haven't read the book, I wonder if you could sort of describe it. Sure. Uh, so The Prettiest Star is set in 1986, um, and it follows Brian Jackson, who is this young gay man who is estranged from his family, and uh, he's been living in New York City for the past six years. Um, and he is uh, HIV positive and he's lost his lover and many of his friends to AIDS and he makes a decision to return home to the small town in Appalachia you know, where he grew up. Um, so the novel kind of looks at the AIDS epidemic through the lens of kind of rural America and just focuses on this one family. And it's about shame and silence and homophobia and about the family's that we're born into, the families we create, um, and also about the forces of, of love. And the novel is told in um, three different um, perspectives. It, it follows a chorus of voices. So we have Brian's mother, Sharon. Um, we have his younger sister, Jess, who is 14 years old. So she hasn't seen her brother since she was eight. And she's kind of grappling with his return because understanding his return and why he left because, you know, the family keeps um, it a secret that he's queer, keeps it a secret that he's HIV positive. Um, and then there, and then there are Brian's, um, Brian's point of view and his um, sections are these sort of video diaries um, that he makes to kind of document uh, his last summer before he dies. So that's kind of what it what it is and what it's about. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious kind of like how this book came to be. Like, did you did you kind of were you thinking about wanting to write a, a book that dealt with sort of the AIDS epidemic? Was that the starting point or was it that like a character kind of came into being in your mind and the book emerged from there? Hmm. I think. Yeah, I think it was the characters um, kind of thinking about, I think one of the first sections I wrote was from Jess's perspective, like imagining her brother coming back. Um, but 
the impetus for the story or what kind of um, incited it was that I, you know, I keep a kind of a list of ideas, story ideas, and I didn't know if it would turn into a short story or a novel, but I kept thinking about this, um, a guy who, uh, you know, left his small town to live in the city and find his community and find this kind of freedom, and then everyone around him in his community um, was getting sick and dying of AIDS and, and what that would look like to come back home to a place that didn't really want you right and um and so I had this memory I think how this came about was that I had this memory of watching an episode of Oprah when I was like a teenager or kid and she went to this town in West Virginia it was 1987 and it was about a man who was kicked out of the public swimming pool um who was HIV positive and he was gay. And so, you know, they kicked him out of the pool. They drained the pool. They like disinfected the pool. And it, uh, and so she went to his town and sort of had this like town hall and all of these, um, people from his community from the town were there and, um, and he was there. And, you know, I had this sort of memory of it. And then I looked it up later and I could find clips of it online. And, um, you know, it's really hard to watch, like, now. Um, people are really vitriolic and ugly and homophobic and hateful. And this man is, like, sitting there on stage the entire time. And, uh, you know, this guy gets up and he says, AIDS is, like, nature's way of eradicating gay men. Um, and this man repulses me and... Uh, his lifestyle repulses me. And he says that and everyone in the audience like claps. It's so <laughs> horrific to, to watch now. But um, I think that, you know, it really, of course, I didn't know at the time because I was like 13 or 14, but it really stuck with me and kind of lodged itself in my brain. And like thinking about it a lot now, it's like, I don't think I was shocked by the hate because that was sort of normal at the time. I mean, I heard that all the time that like gay people would be eradicated by AIDS. Um, and it was just sort of the way people talked, um, you know, in the, in the eighties. And, um, but I think what was maybe even like surprising for me, even though I had no understanding of my own queerness yet, um, was like seeing this gay man from like a rural town in West Virginia, like who was very out and very courageous, like sit there and not be afraid and tell his um, story. And I feel like that, you know, left an impression on me that I couldn't understand at the time. Um, just kind of a long <laughs> um, answer about how this novel sort of first, I first started thinking about it. No, but that's so powerful. And yeah, and, and just to imagine watching that as like a young person also, right? <laughs> it makes sense that that would imprint itself mm -hmm. in in your brain. Um, well, and I I wanted to ask you also about, about the fact that um, this is like, in some ways this novel is about queer history. It's about like the history of the AIDS epidemic in gay communities, but it also is very much from like a rural perspective. And um, mm -hmm. I appreciate that very much. And I'm really excited about reading mm -hmm. it for that reason. But I'm curious about kind of like that piece of writing it for you. Um, and if, it, you know, if it was important for you that it was based in a rural place or just that like 
if it was challenging to write from that perspective because so much of the history we have of like queer history generally and specifically the AIDS epidemic is very much based in cities just kind of mm-hmm. it's not a very um specific question but <laughs> whatever comes to yeah. mind from that ramble yeah no no yeah I mean I I'm always sort of interested in kind of the intersection of rural and queer experiences and and want to write about that and um and of course it's it's kind of difficult um to find especially yeah during this period in the 80s and the 90s and um you're right i mean most of the literature we read or the movies um from that time take place in san francisco or new york um which i think rightly so and and, you know because those communities were just like devastated by aids and they were sort of the epicenters of um of the aids epidemic but um, you know, there was um, a population of gay men who returned home to these small towns for various, you know, reasons. Sometimes they had no other kind of choice. Um, and so that, that felt really important to kind of tell that story. I also like, I, you know, there's some great novels and nonfiction books written about um, the activism, like ACT UP and uh what was going on in New York and San Francisco. And that's not a story I feel like I could write. Um, But this one that was about the sort of one family and the small town was a story I felt like I could enter and um, write about, even though it's not my particular story, but I could kind of lend my own, um, I guess, an insight into it as someone who grew up in a rural place. and yeah, as far as doing research, you know, there there isn't a lot out there about um, the AIDS epidemic in small towns, um, um, especially from like a queer perspective. But there is this fantastic book that um, I'd actually read before I started reading, working on the novel, uh, but went back to quite a bit um, called My Own Country by Abraham Bergesi. And uh, it's a nonfiction account, and it's about this Indian American um, infectious disease doctor who, I think he was in Boston, and then for his residency, he um, went to, uh, I want to say Kingsport or somewhere eastern, um, eastern Tennessee, and and that was like '86, and he was getting all these AIDS patients, and the level it was just like another level of kind of denial, right? Because people didn't want there was so much shame and so much stigma around it. So it was really um, hard to kind of get people in to the hospital and like get, give them access and healthcare. Um, so it's a really uh, kind of fascinating book. And, um, so, but that's kind of the only one I know of that really, um, right, kind of captures what was going on in rural America in, during the time of the AIDS epidemic. So there are three main, there are three characters who narrate the book, right? There's Brian, mm-hmm. yeah. his mother, and his younger sister. Um, and I'm curious about how, or like what that choice offered in terms of telling the story that potentially like a single narrator wouldn't. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, my first novel, The Evening Hour, was written with one um, narrator, which was in the third person. And so this was a really a challenge for me in some ways to write um, in first person from these three different characters. Uh, 
perspectives because, you know, I, I had to make sure they all sounded um, different. They couldn't sound alike. Right. And then kind of figure out their own sort of individual arcs and then how that connected to the larger um, narrative. But, you know, Brian, it felt very important to write from Brian's point of view because um, I think often uh, we have, we get these stories that are written about, you know, the family's experience of when their gay son came home or when their son was dying of AIDS. Um, and we don't get the queer person's um, point of view. So it felt very important that I had, this had to be his story and that his voice um, was critical to, to this novel. Um, but it's not just, it, it is his story, but it's very much the story of his family and who, um, accept him, who loves him unconditionally, who um, fails him. And so, uh, so I, I wanted, um, I guess, kind of other windows or other angles into the novel. Um, and so Jess, who's the 14 year old sister, um, like she's sort of this, I, I, I think she's an important point of view because she doesn't know what's going on. Like nobody's telling her her brother's gay. Nobody is telling her that he's dying of AIDS. Um, but she's also like the most savvy in some ways. Like she can kind of see through all the lies that are being told around her. And so I think of her as sort of this truth teller, um, that she can articulate things that a lot of the adult characters really can't or won't. Um, so I really kind of started with her and Brian's perspectives, kind of moving back and forth. And then Sharon, the mother's, you know, I'd probably written, I've been working on it a few months already before I tried to write from her point of view. And once I did, it was like, oh yeah, this is opening the novel up to me in a new way. And her point of view was, was really hard in some ways because she, um, you know, she's failed her son in so many ways and she uh, has a lot of prejudice and, um, you know, she loves her son, but she's just so worried about what the neighbors will think or what about what her church will think. And so kind of um, stepping into that perspective was a little difficult, but felt important as a way to, um, I guess, just really get at the complexity of this, right? Like she she really does love her son and she's trying to do the right thing, but she doesn't have any support and she doesn't really have very much courage. Um, I think that changes by the end, you know, but in the beginning she can't see outside of her own perspective, which I guess also, you know, um, and just thinking about it from a writing perspective, having these three different narrators, it's like a way to tell the story from these different angles in, in a way that like each of those characters would not be able to tell this story in its fullness and with that kind of complexity because they can only see, you know, from their own own sort of um, vision, right, which can be kind of narrow. So, Yeah. That's su that's such the fun thing about writing fiction. I feel like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get to look at something from all these different angles. Um, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um. So now I'm. I think if you'd be up for reading an excerpt, that would be great. 
sure. Uh, I was trying to think about what to read. I often read from Jess's um, chapter. I think she adds a little bit of humor and levity at times. But um, but I feel it's important to write, read from Brian's um, perspective. So I'm going to read his um, first section in the novel. So he's just returned back um, to the small town Chester. And it's in like Appalachia, Ohio, kind of like southeastern Ohio. Um, and Brian's, uh, you know, this is 1986, and he uh, kind of considers himself a video artist. He's got this big kind of clunky video camera, like VHS tapes that he carries around, um, which were sort of becoming, you know, the rage in 85, 86. Um, and so his sections are set up as these sort of video diaries where he's just speaking into the camera and trying to record himself. Um, in some ways, what I was, you know, which I guess what I was trying to do with the book is like preserving this, these queer voices and this um, part of of queer history. Um, so I will just read this section. This is May 11th, 1986. Hello, here I am in Chester, Ohio, my hometown. I'm shooting from my bedroom down in the basement, got my own bathroom down here too. This used to be my sanctuary where I'd go to listen to records, dream about New York. David Bowie's voice carrying me out of Chester into the starry sky. It's emptier now, but looks about the same. Wood paneling, shag blue carpet, a real 70s museum. Here are all my baseball trophies. I used to be such a jock. And here's my idol. Look at his blushed cheeks, feathered hair like a halo, cigarette in hand, silver bracelet sparkling like a disco light, space oddity, alien, freak. I'm surprised my mother didn't get rid of all my posters and records, a reminder of my weirdness, my queerness. Here's my dog, Sadie. Hey, Sadie, come here. I didn't know if she'd remember me, but she came right up and licked my hand while my parents and Jess just stared, the boogeyman. Obviously, I didn't jump into the Hudson, didn't off myself. That day when I was thinking about it, when I went to the piers for the last time, I knew I didn't really have it in me. Anyway, now I'm in this weird honeymoon spot. I feel stronger, healthier than I have in a long time, like there's a little bit of hope. Hope is a dangerous thing. Instead of killing myself, I wrote my parents a letter. I didn't know what I was going to tell them. I've known guys who were sick and went back to small towns all over the country, upstate New York, Kansas, Florida, Kentucky, and never said a word about what was wrong. They went back to their hometowns and died from a mysterious illness. I sat there for a long time with a pen in my hand, trying to figure out how to compose the letter. I thought about telling them I had cancer or something. Then I thought about Sean, what he would do. I wrote the word to see it for myself. Dear mom and dad, there's something I need to tell you. I'm sick. I have HIV. I have AIDS. I wanted to give them the chance to tell me, no, you can't come home again. After I mailed the letter, I didn't know if I'd hear back, but my mother called. I held the phone in my ear like a fucking lifeline. Come home, she said. My dad didn't get on. Truth is, I missed my family, and I didn't know what else to do. I had to get out of New York. Everything reminded me of Sean and death. I saw my reflection in the ghosts of men I passed on the streets. And here, in Chester, my parents told me no one knows, and they want to keep it that way. Jess doesn't know. My grandmother doesn't. The word AIDS will never be said. The word gay will never be said. We'll live happily ever after in denial. Denial has helped me along so far, except look at me. 
My symptoms started about a year ago, maybe a year and a half, but I was pretty sure I had it even before I noticed anything. That's how it goes. For years, the virus works on the inside, invading white blood cells that are supposed to defend the body against infections. Then the monster really begins to show you what it can do. Night sweats, skin rashes, diarrhea. It came down with colds I couldn't shake. A few months ago, I went into the hospital, disgusting white thrush coating my tongue, bacteria in my lungs. I thought I wouldn't come back out. That's how it goes, a cough, a fever. You check into the ICU and come out in a body bag. After I spent three weeks at Bellevue, I started to feel strangely better. It's not going away, I know that. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night with the cold wet sheets tangled around my ankles like snakes. Sometimes herpy blisters flare up in my mouth. Oh, you pretty things. That's the end of that section. Thank you. Gosh, it's got to have been intense to write this book also, just to like spend so much time kind of in that time period, even if not physically. Yeah. Yeah, I worked on it about four years, uh, four and a half years, and it was definitely, you know, at different points, um, very emotionally kind of draining and and heavy. Um, Not so much when I was, like, as I was writing the pages, but just, um, you know, I watched a lot of documentaries and um, read a lot of books and just, um, you know, it, it was just such a sad time just so many um so many lives were lost and uh and just young young people you know just a generation so yeah it was pretty tough at times to kind of get in that space but yeah yeah i have done a few country careers interviews where people talk two people in particular two couples that i interviewed were the some of the few interviews where we've had to like pause (laughs) and have them go smoke a cigarette or like take a break or come back later. Um, And both of the we're talking about just living through it all. So it's so hard to like grasp. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of impossible. It's almost impossible impossible for people who didn't live through it. Right. And yeah. Yeah. There's this documentary. I mean, I've seen so many, but there's one called we were here by David Wiseman that, uh, it's about San Francisco, but I don't know. I mean, I've seen so many, but for some reason watching that one, it, it just really captured like how young, mm-hmm. like so many of these guys were who were losing their entire, I mean, it would just be, you know, when you're 25 years old and losing your entire friend circle. Yeah. yeah. And within sometimes a really short period of time, right? That was this couple I interviewed in Oklahoma talked about that just like, Right. It'd be like week to week to week, more right. and more people sometimes. Yeah. And having no one care about you. I mean, I think right. that was just like the part of it. It was like the whole country hated you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and just like so trauma built on top of trauma. It was just like. Yeah. There was an older lesbian I interviewed in Colorado who'd been a nurse at the time and just talking about like mm-hmm. being a medical provider but also literally not having information and just she started crying in the interview being like there were moments where you wondered like was it true was it a curse on us just anyways it's just so intense (laughs) so intense yeah yeah so your last book before the prettiest star was called the evening hour um 
and that book, do you want to give like a another kind of brief description for listeners who maybe haven't read it about what that was about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the evening hour um, takes place in uh, Appalachia in, in the coal fields of West Virginia. And uh, it follows Cole Freeman and he is a nurse's aide and also a drug dealer. Um, and he's just, he's struggling to kind of imagine a future for himself. And it, it examines like the opioid epidemic in Appalachia, it examines the destruction of um, mountaintop removal coal mining. Um, and I think it's kind of grappling, or one of the questions he's grappling with is like, do we leave or do we stay in this, um, the only home we know, even when that home um, is kind of, is no longer a place that we can really live or is no longer the place we really want it to be or remember it to be. And that book just recently got made into a film that was um, did. made in Harlan County, Kentucky. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a amazing experience. So it was shot in the fall of 2018 in Harlan and it's a feature film and Braden King is the director um, and it just premiered at Sundance, which was really um, quite amazing to see uh, my novel sort of transformed for the the screen. Um, and so at this point, they're still um, shopping it, looking for a distributor. But I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that that will happen, and we will, and people will be able to see it uh, in theaters or you know to stream it. So. And you got to um, spend time on set in Harlan when they were filming. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious what that was like to see how this like novel, this written creation that you'd made, to watch it sort of transform into film. Like what that was like. I loved it. I mean, I really did. I have to say, it was like such a fun and cool and like exciting experience. Um, you know. Like the novel came out in 2012, so I've had quite a bit of distance from it. And um, so Elizabeth Palmore wrote the screenplay, and, and um, I thought she did a, a fantastic job. And you know, as a film, there was a lot that they sort of had to cut out. Um, they had to cut out a lot of the mountaintop removal um, thread line, which uh, I was sorry to see go, but just to try to fit it into a narrative that's like you know two hour film. Um, but they did um, still keep most of the characters and really just, I think, the heart of the book. Um, and so, uh, so it was really um, just a, a really wonderful experience to get to be there on set and, and totally surreal at times, too, you know, like be in Cole's um, trailer and then like see how they would have that decorated like um, and think about what that looked like in comparison to my book. And, you know, a lot of it, I thought they really um, drew these, these strong parallels and captured it. And it was also, you know, just coming from it as a, from a writing perspective and to see how, or to think about how we get into our characters, right? I mean, they kind of do similar things. So it's like, you know, the, the set designers are thinking about, they're reading the script and they're like, who is Cole and what would he have in his room? Like, what are these objects? What can these objects reveal about who he is? Um, 
or you know the the actors themselves can kind of tap into the the characters um the clothes they wear you know all of these things that we think about when we're writing as a way to reveal characters then um they're doing sort of similar in a similar way um with film so that was um yeah it was and then, you know, just seeing my character sort of come to life. So at some point by the end, it's like now, like when I think of Cole, it's hard for me to picture like what Cole looks like in my head without actually looking, without thinking about Phil, who's the actor, right? Um, so I think, um, you know, a lot of people worry, writers worry, like, what if they... It, it just seemed like, you know, the the, act, the characters in the film don't represent the characters that you created. But I, I really felt like it's a different um, art, you know? And so I didn't feel like I had to cling that closely to my novel. Like, my novel's out there, and I hope people continue to read it. And I think that they took the novel and the story and the characters and then... Um, gave it another life and put their own, um, you know, kind of unique perspective on the story. So, um, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it, it was it was exciting, and I was really happy they shot it in, in Harlem, so I could, um, you know, because I have friends in that area, and they gave some work to people in the area, and just uh, being able to get there. Um, on set was was um, a great opportunity that's it for this episode of Mountain Talk where I talked with novelist Carter Sickles about his newest book The Prettiest Star you can order that book directly from the publisher at www.hubcity.org if you liked what you heard and you want to tell a friend to listen to this episode or you want to listen to past episodes of Mountain Talk you can find them on our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Music on this episode features the Dutch Cove String Band with a tune called The Greenville Waltz. That song comes off their album Sycamore Tea, which was released by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings in 1978. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, Thanks for listening to Real People Radio. And please, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay healthy at home during these wild times. <laughs>